Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Life is messy. There's pain, struggle, and suffering all around. And it's not just around us, it impacts us. We've all gone through hardships and experienced challenges. We felt rejected and alone. We've been wronged, mistreated, and even abused. We live in a broken world that is filled with pain. And where is God in all that? Where is God when it hurts? Right? There are wars, natural disasters, disease, injustice all around. Death takes people that we're not ready to lose. The wicked seem to prosper while honest, hardworking, righteous strive and struggle and seem to toil for everything. And one thing that we can all kind of agree on is, man, there's something wrong here. Things are not fair. Does that ever get, does that ever bother you? Do you ever get frustrated with God when you look at the world and all the pain, and you look at all the things that you've suffered and been like, God, what are you doing here? Where are you in all of this? God, how long do we got to cry out for you before you deliver us from this? Right? Because I pray, I beg, I plead, but things don't seem to change. Things don't seem to get better. God, if you're so good, then why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And when are you going to do something about it? Welcome to the book of Habakkuk. It's a small, minor prophets, three chapters long. We're going to camp out here for the next six weeks. Because this book is so incredibly important. And it speaks into a thing that not a lot of other parts of Scripture actually talk about. But it addresses something that is absolutely essential for us to look at in our journey with Jesus. We're all going to come across the same issue. That is the mess and the pain of the world around us. And not only does it become a problem internally in our own lives, one of the greatest secular objections to God is how do you have a good, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God and still have evil exist? How do you explain that God is good and look what happens in Israel? Or Ukraine, because, you know, that war didn't end just because we stopped talking about it. God is good. The world isn't. How do these two things coexist? If God is this God of mercy and justice, why is there so much injustice in the world? This is the focus of the book of Habakkuk. So we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's dive right in. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw... Okay, hold on, man. Pump the brakes. I'm trying to take notes here. I get it. That's a lot to cover. A lot to unpack. So we got a book. It's written by this guy named Habakkuk. Here's what we know about him. His name is Habakkuk. 
Good talk. In a time in which no one in the Old Testament gets introduced without getting like seven generations before them. Like, oh, have you met John? Look at his dad and then his dad and his dad. That's how the Old Testament introduces people with like a lineage of their history. Taking them all the way back to Adam. This guy, we don't know his dad. We don't know his tribe. We don't know his occupation. We don't know his favorite ice cream flavor. We got nothing. What we do know is that the text calls him a prophet. Which doesn't make sense because Habakkuk does not fit the mold of a prophet. See, a prophet is someone who has a word from God that he delivers to people, typically to God's people. Habakkuk never addresses the people. His book is written as a song of lament. The first few chapters, the first two chapters, are him arguing with God. Where he calls God out and demands answers. <coughs> That's brave. Because Habakkuk is confused. He's frustrated. And he's struggling. And in order for us to really understand why, we have to do a quick little stroll through Old Testament history. It starts with God's covenant with Abram. This is before he got hammed. Where God tells Abram that he was going to be the father of great nations. His descendants would be more numerous than the stars. He goes, from you, I will build this great nation. I will bring my chosen people. That's Israel. And I will lead them into this promised land. This happens around 2100 BC. But then things don't really go as expected. This promised line that God was going to move through, they flee down to Egypt to escape a famine. They end up as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Then God delivers them from captivity, sends Moses. There's 10 plagues that he casts on Israel. They walk across the Red Sea on dry land. They go into the desert. They get the law. They enter into a covenant with God. They become officially his chosen people, set apart to be holy and his. They wander in the wilderness, but they're not allowed to go into this promised land because they continue to prove unfaithful. And so an entire generation of them die in the wilderness. When that generation dies, finally they get to go in. Here's the problem. When they they get to this promised land, it's not like a new construction, right? There's some people that already have the audacity to be living in the land that God promised them. And so if they're going to take hold of this land, if they're going to receive what was promised, they got to fight for it. And so Israel goes into this state of constant, perpetual conflict and violence with a revolving door of enemies. Canaanites, Amorites, Amalekites, Hittites, Philistines, Moabites, Edomites, Assyrians, Babylonians, on and on. It's battle after battle, war after war, endless, constant conflict. And so then these people who were chosen and set apart by God to be holy say, we don't want to be different. We want to be like everybody else. God says, you don't want to be like everybody else. They say, yeah, we do. We want a king. He says, you don't want a king. He says, yeah, we want a king. I mean, what are you? Omniscient God, what do you know? So they say, we want to pick a king. And so they're like, okay, you can pick. And so God finally relents and says, you can have a king. So they pick Saul. They base him on three important criteria, that he is tall, dark, and handsome. Okay? Any leadership book worth reading will note that these are the most important qualities for a leader to have. That does not go good. Saul is a terrible king. But then we get to David. Israel's greatest and most famous king, the story that everybody, no matter whether they've been in church their whole life or never stepped foot through the doors, knows the story of the little shepherd boy who killed the giant Goliath. David's a great warrior. He's a great leader. He's a great songwriter. He writes a lot of the songs. And for the most part, he's an honorable man. He's got a couple of blemishes on his record, made a couple of bad choices, really bad choices in there. But despite his imperfections, 
God still refers to David as being a man after his own heart. David becomes king around 1025 B.C. He's a great king. He establishes Israel's borders. He strengthens her position. He pleads with God to allow him to build the temple. God says yes. He starts building the temple. And then David dies. And the Bible moves on like one verse later. Like this guy is the greatest king in the history of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the guy from whom the promised Messiah would come through his line. He dies. The Bible gives us one sentence and then just, all right, moving on. David's son Solomon becomes king. Solomon leads Israel into a golden age of peace and prosperity. And finally, the people of God get to experience the fulfillment of the promise that God gave Abraham. 1,100 years later, generation after generation held to this promise, looked for this promise, called on this promise, and generation after generation died without seeing that promise come to fruition. Finally, in Solomon, they get to see it happen. They get to experience the fulfillment of this promise. And then guess what? Solomon dies and the Bible gives us like one sentence and moving on. And right after Solomon's death, Israel starts collapsing in on itself like a dying star. They turn from God. They turn to idolatry. They lose battles. They get taken into captivity. 1,100 years of waiting for a promise. They get to experience the fulfillment of that promise for 40 years. And then they go right back into the mess. Battle, conflict, struggle. All right, so <laughs> we plan our sermon series out about a year in advance. So like we just finished doing all of 2024's kind of teaching calendar. Last year in October, we did everything for this year. So in October of last year, we said this Sunday is going to be the Sunday we start Habakkuk. When we did that, we had no idea what was going to happen in Israel two weeks ago. But because it connects, and there's a lot of overlap here, and it creates a lot of questions, I'm going to take just a minute and speak into it. Uh, it's been a long time since I got an angry email, so really just trying to make sure I can get that back on track. <laughs> there are two times in the history of Israel that have not been characterized by constant conflict. The 40-year reign of Solomon, where they had the golden age of peace and prosperity, and where the nation of Israel didn't exist. That's it. Anytime conflict in Israel starts getting attention, people start talking about the end times, asking questions. Is this it? Right? Oh, hold on. I think I heard a trumpet. I think this is it. Is Jesus coming back? Is it right now? Is this happening? I got to tie my shoes real quick. I don't want to have no shoes in heaven. Right? And we start freaking out, talking about the end times. So let me just say this for you. Okay, are we in the end times? This is the big question. For some reason, everybody just keeps asking me, are we in the end times? Here's the answer. Yes. Absolutely we are. Guess what? That didn't start two weeks ago. It started 2,000 years ago. 
When Jesus ascended into heaven, the end times began because the work, the redemptive plan that God had, the work that he was doing was finished. So Jesus goes up to the throne. Now the end times begin. We've been in the end times for 2,000 years. In fact, every generation of believers, starting with the apostles themselves, believed that Jesus would return during their lifetime. And as far as we can tell, every generation of believers has pointed to some event, some war, something happening in the world around them and going, see, that's it. That's the proof. He's about to come back. So whenever there's this publicized conflict in Israel, what happens is these clowns in pastor's clothing take up to social media. They go onto news outlets and they start talking about prophecies and they start talking about Daniel and the full moon and revelation going, look, here's how current events tie into what the Bible was talking about. So here's what I want you to understand. When you listen to them, when you agree with them, you are placing your faith in a team with a batting average of zero. Over the generations, these guys have swung at a whole lot of pitches. They've yet to hit the ball. Everybody in the history of ever who has gone, look, current event, look, biblical prophecy, this is about that, has been wrong. Unequivocally and embarrassingly so. When I was a kid, I remember there was this book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 88. <laughs> he doesn't sell a lot of copies anymore. <laughs> but that's what his book was. It was 88 things happening in the world in 1988 that he connected to prophecies in the Bible saying, here's how we know Jesus is going to come back in 88. Happy New Year. Jesus didn't come back. Poor guy can't sell books now, so he revises his edition. 89 reasons Jesus will return in 89. He tags on to at the end. There was a discrepancy in the manuscripts, and I miscounted. That's the next reason. Ba -ba -da -ba, happy New Year. Still no Jesus back. Hmm. So let me say this clearly. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. What I do know is that in Matthew 24, Jesus says no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son himself. They don't know. Now, the prophetic future-telling camp, they can do some pretty impressive and kind of absurd intellectual acrobats to get around that clear, direct statement. So Jesus takes it a step further. Acts 1, 7, he says, it is not for you to know. That information doesn't belong to you. It is not given for you. You don't need it. Quit looking for it. I, I'm confused though. Okay, remember in the garden, you got Adam and Eve, right? What was the thing that led them to eat the fruit and to sin against God? Was it the desire for forbidden knowledge? If Jesus says that knowledge is not for you and we continue to try to acquire the knowledge that Jesus says isn't for you, does that seem like a problem? But these guys, these little wackadoodles, they go, yeah, 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 hold on, hold on. But there's this stuff. There's this prophecy in Daniel. <sighs> Here's the thing. If there's something in the Old Testament that can point clearly when Jesus is coming back, you know who would know that? Jesus. He knew the Old Testament real good. Maybe because he wrote the thing. So when you hear people connecting prophecies in the Bible to current events. I want you to understand one thing. They are not being prophetic. 
They are not being insightful. They have not cracked some mysterious code that nobody else figured out. They are arguing with Jesus. Jesus says, no one's going to know. It's not for you to know. They're saying, yeah, but I'm going to figure it out anyway. I don't tend to side with a group that does that. I get it. Eschatological speculation is a subject of a great deal of fascination. What that means is we find it really interesting to think about the mysteries of how things are going to happen in the future. But all that stuff is basically the Christian version of a horoscope. Oh, I connected these things together. Cool. It's like when it says, you'll meet someone new tomorrow. You got to work real hard to not do that. But they knew ahead of time. My horoscope is clearly right. These guys are worth trusting. Nope. Sorry, now I'm going to be on a rant. Uh, <laughs> Here's what I can tell you. Jesus says this. Be ready. Parable after parable, Jesus uses these illustrations to say, be ready. You don't know when the sun's going to return, so be ready for it. And if parables were too obscure, he says it directly and repeatedly. Be ready. Now, what the Bible does tell us about the return of Jesus is that it will happen suddenly. In the blink of an eye, the flash of light, it's going to happen when Jesus returns. You are not going to have time to get ready. So the only way that you can be ready for the return of Jesus is if you live ready for the return of Jesus. Here's what that means. Knowing Jesus, growing in Jesus, showing Jesus to others. Jesus does not call us to speculate about the future. What he calls us to do is be faithful and obedient to the instructions that he has given. Do not get distracted with the mystery when you have a clear instruction in front of you. How do I know then if I'm ready? Here's the best way to figure it out. If I told you with absolute certainty, I'm not doing this because then I'd be contradicting myself. Tomorrow morning, Jesus is coming back. What are you doing differently in your life? Who's that person that just popped into your head? If you knew 100% certainty, Jesus come back tomorrow morning, who's that person that God has laid on your heart that you've been neglecting actually ministering to the way that God's been telling you to do it? What's that thing that popped into your heart that the Holy Spirit has been tugging on you to do that you have been putting off because I'll get to it later? What are you taking out of your life? What are you adding into your life? If you knew with certainty Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what about your life would you change you are ready when your answer to that question is nothing. Anything that you would change about your life under the looming idea that Jesus is about to return tomorrow, bless you, you need to change today. That's what it means to be ready. This doesn't just come from how I look at the end times. I want you to look at something for, with me. If you look to the Old Testament, I challenge you to find a single instance where God makes a promise to the people and their expectation for what that promise looked like wasn't wrong. Find one. Tells Abraham, you're going to have many kids. You think Abraham expected to wait another 25 years as a 75-year-old dude before he had his first kid? Nope. Think they expected when they got to this promised land that it was going to be occupied, they were going to have to fight for it? Nope, but they did. You think David, when he was anointed by God to be king, he thought he was going to spend the next 25 years of his life hiding in caves, running and fleeing? Nope, but he did. 
the people of God rejected the Messiah of God that they were waiting for because what they expected him to be and who he was didn't match. Every time in the Old Testament, every time in the Bible I can think of where God gives a promise, the expectation that people have for that promise has been wrong. It's not that God is not faithful to his promise. It's that we put expectations that God didn't give. Why do we think that that's different now? What about us has become so enlightened that we're going to get it right this time? That's the issue with Habakkuk. That's what's going on here. It's expectation versus reality. See, what happens, right, is you have Solomon go, Israel starts falling apart. They didn't expect to wait 1,100 years for God to give them this land. They didn't expect to have it for 40 and then lose it only to go into a cycle of 300 years of idolatry and suffering. And then you know what happens? Josiah becomes king at the ripe age of eight. Okay, so if you love your nation, you love your people, and you're watching it kind of circle the drain, and then an eight-year-old takes the throne, who's feeling real confident about that future? He's a kid, man. He still watches Paw Patrol. You gonna have him lead a nation that's surrounded by enemies? Like, I'd be like, man, Rowan's almost five. I'm like, man, him leading the country in like three years, that is, that's going to be a real weird country. You look at that and all your like commentators and your news analysts be like, this is it. This is the end. We're going down now. Except for against all reasonable expectations. The eight-year-old kid does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. During Josiah's reign, they find this scroll Turns out to be the Torah, the law of God. He reads it. He weeps. He tears his clothes. He brings the nation of Israel together, calls all the people together to hear the law as they reads it to them. And he calls them to repentance. He leads a national revival, returning the people of God to the worship and pursuit of God. At this time, here's what's happening. There are three great powers. Guess what? The southern kings of Israel, not one of them. You have Assyria that's the strongest, but they're in decline. Babylon, they're violent, aggressive, and brutal. They're on the rise. Egypt, also in decline. So Egypt says to the southern kingdom of Israel, we're going to march our armies through your land on our way to Assyria. Josiah says, yeah, no, I don't want you to do that. They said, you thought we were asking. We were telling you what we're about to do. And they just marched on through. Josiah's not happy with that, so he calls the nation to battle. And then Josiah disguises himself as a soldier because he refused to sit on a top of a hill safe as the king while he asked other people to risk their lives for his cause. So he, hides, he disguises himself as a soldier so he can go fight in the battle. He fights. He dies. And his son, Jehoahaz, becomes king. That's definitely how you pronounce it. Don't look it up. Uh, Jehoahaz is kind of dumb. He immediately starts leading Israel back into idolatry and undoing all the work that his dad had done. He doesn't stay king for very long, though, because when Egypt does whatever, finishes whatever they were doing in Assyria, they bring their armies back, they go through, they grab Jehoahaz off of the throne, they take him into exile, he dies in captivity. So Josiah's second son becomes king. His name is Jehoiakim. Also, definitely right pronunciation. Jehoiakim is dumber than his dumb brother. It takes him all of 11 years to lead the southern kingdoms of Israel to destruction. That's when Habakkuk writes. He lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Israel. 
He watched the people of God steeped in idolatry, and he begged God to do something about it. And, and God did. Josiah comes along, and he's leading Israel back to a golden age, like a second Solomon. The people are turning to God. People are honoring God. Things are moving in the right direction. Hope is on the horizon, and right there at the precipice of revival, Josiah dies, and everything gets worse than it had ever been. And Habakkuk just cries out like, God, why? Why did you let this happen? How could you let this go on? Like, he looks at the decaying state of the people of God. He goes, why do you let your people live like this? When are you going to fix it? When are you going to do something about it? You see, Habakkuk is struggling because God's plan is not meeting his expectation. And so you ever been frustrated with God? Sitting there in the pain of your life or the pain of the, lo- of the world around you, seeing this evil and this wickedness, these struggles, and just been like, God, I don't get it. I have good news for you. You're not alone. There's an entire book of the Bible that God has given to you to address that very thing. And it's not just a book of the Bible. There's also psalms that do the same thing. One of them written by David, Psalm 22. It's a famous psalm being that it's about Jesus. Everything he describes is very apparent because it's a description of exactly what happens to Jesus on the cross. Jesus quotes it from the cross. But Psalm 22 and the book of Habakkuk follow the exact same pattern. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to open up with the first half of Psalm 22. And when we wrap up the series, we're going to look at the last half of Psalm 22 so that you can see that the flow of Habakkuk and Psalm 22 are exactly the same. Let me read for you. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. You on you was I cast from birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help many bulls encompass me strong bulls of Bashan surround me they open wide their mouths at me like rav- like a raving and roaring lion I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it is melted in my breast my strength is dried up like a post heard, and my tongue sticks out to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Have you ever felt like that? My God. Why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from me? When I cry out to you, why does it seem like you're not listening? Why does it seem like you don't hear me? Right? There's something incredibly real and incredibly honest about this. But oftentimes, we don't approach God with that level of honesty, do we? Maybe that's why we don't receive the same comfort. See, Psalm 22 and the book of Habakkuk follow the same mold. They begin with lament, sorrow, and frustration. And they end with praise. See, both the psalmist and the prophet are brutally honest with their feelings. They don't try to hide their mess. They approach God from it. Yet how often as a church do we walk through the doors with our holy facade of put-togetherness, pretending that we're okay even when we're not okay? Life is messy. But sometimes there's this weird religious pressure to pretend it's not. Like if you really love Jesus, if you're really a Christian, right, life is just going to be rainbows and sunshine prancing through fields of lilies while health and wealth rain down around you and the clouds are made of cotton candy and everybody's singing kumbaya and everything is always awesome. And if that's not how you feel all the time, it must be because you're broken. Because the modern church has created a culture where it is normal to pretend that you're okay even when you're not. Look, the church, there's a difference between having joy and contentment despite the storms of life and pretending that you're not struggling when you are. We don't know what was happening in David's life that led him to write this song. What we do know is that God anointed him to be king. And for the next 25 years, David was running for his life, hiding in caves from a madman who wanted to kill him because people liked David better. You don't think he felt frustrated and abandoned? 25 years. You go, man, I've been praying for this. I've been struggling with this for like six months. Cool, that's your rookie badge. You get your David badge at 25 years. When you've been praying for deliverance from the same thing for 25 years, that's where you get that badge. You don't think he was frustrated? You don't think he's sitting there going, like, God, what happened here? You made this promise. Why am I living in a cave? Where are you? Where's the promise? When are you going to do what you said that you would do? And David has those frustrations. Man, he takes those frustrations to God. What we see in the Bible is that when people bring their mess to God, they experience him in a different way. Church, the journey to maturity in Jesus requires us to go through the mess and pain of life. Now, sometimes the thing that gets to us is not what happens to us, but what happens to people that we love. But the struggles and pain of life, they're either going to pull you away from Jesus or they're going to grow you in Jesus. And typically, 
the deciding factor is were you honest about it? Did you actually address it? Or did you say, I'm okay, I'm fine, I don't need help until it was too late for anything to be done? What gets hidden does not get healed. That's what we see from Habakkuk, from David, is these guys calling out to God in the mess, in their pain, in their frustration, being honest, really beautifully and wonderfully honest with where they were with God. They bring that to him, and what they walk away from is not lament, but rejoicing. They take God their pain, and they end up singing his praises because what they get when they're real and honest with God is this incredible comfort that only he can give, and it results in rejoicing despite the fact that the situation that they were in didn't change. Real faith comes from getting really honest in the real messes of life. Because you cannot grow and mature in Jesus if you don't trust him with your pain. If you don't trust him with your struggles, if you don't engage with him in your suffering then you'll never get past it. And so the call of David, the call of Habakkuk, the focus of this book is not, hey, suffering went away. It's be honest about it. Lay it at the feet of the cross and experience the comfort that only Jesus can give because when you are honest with Jesus, your faith matures. When you bring your struggles to Jesus, your faith matures. Drone hit the stage now where he starts telling us how he feels. The other night, he does something. He goes, Daddy, I'm sad. I don't remember what I was doing when he said it, but immediately I stopped. My kid just told me he's sad. And I went over, and I talked to him, and I tried to comfort him. Do you know why he got comforted? Because he told me he was sad. And this selfish, sinful, wildly inconsistent human being that I am said, I don't want my son to be sad. I want to address that sadness. God is a much better father than I'll ever be. You don't think when you go to your father and you tell him, I'm struggling. That he's not going to pull you close and bring you comfort. The difference between the mature, those who grow those who have this strong bond with Jesus is not some magical formula. It's that those who are close to Jesus are those who lay it all at his feet. When they have doubts, they take him their doubts. When they have pain, they take him their pain. We live in a world filled with hurt. Stop pretending take your hurt to the one who can actually heal it. Take your frustrations to the God that can actually do something about it. And what we see throughout scriptures, when that happens, it turns to praise. It turns to real 
faith in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. In spite of the struggles of this life, in in spite of the pain and suffering around us, we praise you because we know that you are good. And we hold on to the promise that the struggles and the, the hardships that we face, that they're temporary. That this is not how it's supposed to be and not how it will be for eternity. And we long for the day that we get to be with you. We long for the day that we get to spend eternity with you without these things. But in the meantime, God, we want to bring them to you. I pray that you would wrap your arms around every person struggling. That you would draw them close. That we would have the openness and the honesty to lay our cares, our concerns, and our troubles at your feet. That we would leave them at your feet. And that we would recognize that you are Lord over them all. And just because your promise does not come about the way we expect it to, does not mean that you will be any less faithful to it. Let us be a people that don't just worship the idea of perfection, but that we worship you and we come to you in the realness of who we are and a longing to be with you in that perfection. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.